Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of Blade Homers and Podcast, part of Crimson and Cream Machine and the SB Nation Network of Podcasts. Uh, I'm doing something a little bit different today. I'm rolling solo. Um, I have an article up uh, over at Crimson and Cream Machine this week looking at just uh, you know some big trends in recruiting uh, for the Oklahoma Sooners in the past you know decade or so uh, with National Signing Day having wrapped up. And, uh, you know, I'll link to that, obviously, but I wanted to give everybody kind of a look, you know, maybe go a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that I re- uh, wrote about there. Uh, you know, and obviously you can read all that information. I've got, uh, you know, charts, tables, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, tried to give kind of a quant look at things, but, uh, you know, I wanted to expand a little bit deeper on, on some of the stuff that I think was has been, you know, kind of going on, that type of thing. So, you know, looking back, the first thing that I wrote about is um, attrition, now, you, you know, attrition, you know, I mean, this is players leaving OU's program, obviously. Uh, you know, you, this could be, uh, you know, a kid who decides he wants to transfer because he's, you know, not happy at school or, you know, not playing, not getting enough playing time. Maybe the grades don't work out. Uh, you know, he could be, he could get in some type of, uh, you know, uh, there could be a conduct issue, something like that. So, you know, I kind of break attrition down into two separate buckets, right? There's bad attrition. That would be a player who, you know, gets homesick and leaves. And uh, I I count that as bad attrition because you don't really know necessarily what that player might have been, you know, going, going along the lines. Uh, you know, there's also, again, uh, you know, mentioned uh, conduct suspensions. That would be, for example, looking back, a guy like uh, Trey Matwire, for example. Uh, again, that's not good either. Uh, not just because of what it uh, brings to, you know, the negative light that it portrays the program in, but also, um, you know, the idea that you have a talented player who could contribute, who you can no longer uh, have on the roster. So that that's also in the, in the bad bucket, you know, and there's also good attrition. And I don't mean this in the sense that, um, you know, it's great that this kid is leaving the team or what have you just more like, it's kind of, it, it's, it's normal. It's expected. You know, you see this at programs all around the country when the player, for example, uh, loses his spot on the depth chart, that type of thing. and decides to transfer out or leave or give up football because, uh, you know, that type of thing. Um, I should also mention, by the way, that I count injuries as uh, bad attrition. You know, if someone's forced to retire early due to an injury, that would fall. I would put that in the bad category. Um, you know, then like, for example, uh, I, I, I contrast all that attrition with someone who I consider to have finished, right? The, so that would be player who goes through three years and leaves early for the NFL. I count that one as a, as a finish. I count player who's there for four or five years and, you know, uses up his eligibility at OU 
Uh, I count that as a finish. Also, I count grad transfers also just because they've been there for four years. And, you know, if you're grad, if you're a grad transfer, chances are that you probably, you know, it kind of maximized where you could be, I think, with OU's program. So, you know, anyway, looking back, you know, I think that Oklahoma kind of hit this malaise kind of in the middle, uh, you know, early part really of the 2010s to kind of middle. And, you know, there are programs I think throughout the country that would absolutely kill to have that type of downturn or down or, or swoon that OU had. I mean, you're talking about uh, teams that consistently finished, you know, with double digit wins. Uh, you know, one of those teams uh, finished, you know, I, I, I guess tied for the Big Twelve title. Um, the two the 2013 team won a uh, you know the Sugar Bowl against. Uh, Alabama. So, I mean, you know, to, to call it a down, a downturn is, you know, uh, you know, maybe being a little bit, uh, overdramatic, but you know what I mean? Like those teams just didn't quite measure up and, you know, looking at what happened, I think during that, that tent, that part of the, uh, you know, part of the uh, cycles kind of in the recruiting, you, you look back at it and man, I mean, oh, you had a ton of attrition. I mean, a ridiculous amount and it really kind of screwed up how they managed the roster. So, you know, let's go back and let's look at the 2011 class, right? Now this class, uh, I'll note, by the way, I accidentally miscounted one player, uh, in the story that I have. So this, this class actually had 17 players, not 18, but the point still kind of stands, uh, you know, uh, let's see here. The 2011 class had a total of 17 players. Um, Ten of them were on offense, seven on defense. A total of ten out of the seventeen ended up, uh, you know, washing out, so to speak, of the program. They were gone. They they fall in the they fell in the attrition bucket. Now that works out to a total of about sixty percent of the entire class. Now. Uh, that's a lot, right? And let's look back at who some of these players were, right? There's, uh, you know, uh, there's there's some guys, you know, Dylan Dismuke, for example, would be one, or, uh, you know, he, he was gone. Max Stevenson is another one. Some of the big issues here, though, too, are, are some guys, you know, for example, the Trey Matoire first signed with OU in this class, 2011, and uh, I think that there was a grades issue, if I remember correctly, and he was forced to go to a fifth-year school. So, uh, you know, that falls into the attrition bucket for this particular class. Uh, Brandon Williams, a running back, a five-star kid, really, really talented. Only made it one year at OU, you know, really didn't contribute much his freshman year and then uh, left and transferred to Texas A&M. Again, that falls in the uh, bat, you know, in the, in the attrition bucket. So you had a lot of problems here. You know, I mean, seven. You've got one recruiting class, and essentially you only got seven players out of it. You know, looking at the defensive side, some of the bigger names here. For example, uh, Marquise Anderson, defensive tackle. He was gone with that after a year. Um, so you know, this is this is kind of where I think things really started to go wrong for OU. Um, so the because the next season. Uh, Trishan really didn't get much better. I mean, it was, I guess, somewhat better numbers-wise, but the class had uh, 25 players in it and 11 washed out, so nearly half. Um, And you're looking at, again, part of the issue here becomes what was going on with how they were managing the roster, right? So offense in this class, they took 
18 players and only seven on defense. So start thinking about what your roster starts to look like in that kind of case when there's that kind of imbalance uh, in the roster, right? You've got all these players on the offensive side of the ball, not as many on the defensive side just in terms of sheer numbers. But, you know, looking back, some of the guys, you know, who were washing out back then in 2012, let's see here, uh, you know, like Courtney Gardner, for example, Juco wide receiver who never made it to campus. I think, again, there was a grades issue there. Um, you know, you've got guys like, I believe it was John Michael McGee who made it to campus for like a couple weeks or a couple days and then quit. Uh, Trey McTwire, again, you know, he was able to get on the field uh, for one year, but uh, then we all know it didn't uh, turn out particularly well for him down the line with uh, some, you know, kind of uh, nasty uh, legal issues. Just on down the line, you know, you look down here and it just, you, these guys just were not panning out. Um, and so that's, you know, again, that's nine out of eight. Let's see here. Pardon me, 11 out of. 25 that were washed out of the class and so at this point though again i mentioned we had you have this imbalance between offense and defense so think about what that means for your for your defensive uh roster you don't have nearly as much room to uh you know kind of let younger guys kind of come along and work their way in the lineup in a lot of cases they've got to get on the field earlier or you know you're basically kind of saddled with guys who um maybe you know normally you wouldn't end up playing but you kind of have to just because uh that's the way it goes you know so you know older more kind of project type players right so you, you you look up and down the list and, and then it starts you know i mean attrition from that 2011 and 2012 era i mean down the line per class it starts to kind of slow down and moderate and what i think though is is key though and i brought up is you start getting more kind of what you call the uh, the good attrition if you know what i mean uh, down the line as opposed to, uh, you know, players who were, you know, maybe having some type of other kind of uh, the bad attrition issues. So, you know, looking like, for example, let's take the 2016 class. Um, this class had a total of 20 players in it, eight washed out um, for an attrition rate of... Uh, 36%. So, you know, that 36% when you look at it that way, isn't that much, uh, isn't that much lower than like 2012, for example, when it was 44%, but you know, that's, it's enough to make a, a, a kind of a difference in terms of who's staying with the program. Uh, you look at some of the guys who, uh, were gone from 2016. Now you have, you know, bad attrition in the form of, uh, Parish Cobb, but you know you have some uh, Capri Doucette, for example, left uh, because he wasn't uh, getting enough playing time. Um, you know you had guys also in this class, like for example, Mark Jackson. Uh, he just recently announced, I believe, that he's going to be a graduate transfer this season. You know, he made it four years at OU. He, he never quite developed maybe into the player that people were expecting, but at the same time, I mean, he was there. He contributed. He was, you know, at worst a scout team guy. You know, I mean, so that's that works you know looking at the other side of the ball you know uh some of the players who washed out would include uh zach farrar uh john carlo valentin you know uh austin kendall um uh logan roberson i mean these were players who uh, you know and i'm not trying to slight any of them but just players who 
naturally, you know, ended up finding a new home because they weren't they weren't playing enough. They weren't able to uh, overcome, you know, the guys who would, who beat them out for spots. And you know, that's that's not a, a that's a healthy thing, I think, for any program across the country. You know, you you hate for the situation. You hope that it works out for a kid, but at the same time, I mean, it's it's natural and it's to be expected. So that's kind of the situation that OU finds itself in now. You're getting a lot more of that. I don't feel like there's the same maybe recruiting out of like say desperation, where you have to get somebody just to because you know you need you need a body to fill a spot on the scout team or you know that that type of thing. So that's all all really good. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. And then I mentioned, you know, again, all that attrition, what it, the, I call it a second order effect in terms of think about from the example, the standpoint, for example, wide receiver, right? If OU's going to need at any given time three or four wide receivers on the field, well, think about how, what that means for your numbers in terms of how many roster spots you, you need to fill out uh, at that position. So, you know, at the same time, when you're bringing in guys who are then, you know, washing out, uh, that you know, that becomes a problem because you've got to fill those spots on the roster. But at the same time, you don't have the same type of continuity. You don't have you're you're having to take, you know, essentially take roster spots away from other positions where maybe things are a little bit more solid to get immediate fill-ins, which becomes a big time problem. And, you know, I think down the line, really, that's kind of, I think what, what did Jay Norvell in at Oklahoma, you start looking at how many guys, uh, how many receivers came through the program and left or really never kind of developed into the kinds of players that they maybe should have been. Uh, and that's what I think, you know, ended up doing in Jay Norvell, who was seen as a really good recruiter. And in fact, the, the numbers will tell you, you know, he was, he was bringing in great receivers. Uh, the problem is they either weren't staying in the program or just, you know, didn't do much. It ne- really never, de- a few of them developed that much beyond, you know, what, what it was that they came to the program with, if that makes sense. They never really got better after their freshman year. And so I, you know, I think that part of OU's, you know, as much as everyone wants to bang on Mike Stoops, and there's plenty of uh, room for criticism there. I mean, think about that, though. You know, when you've got, for example, looking at the 2014 season, let's look at the numbers here. Okay, for the four-year total as of 2014 in terms of how uh, Oklahoma had recruited players, 53 uh, members of the of that of the previous four recruiting class that includes 2014. So this would be 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. 53 players th- that OU signed during that period were on the offensive side of the ball, and only 40 were on defense. 
right? So there's a huge skew there in terms of which which side of the ball is getting the bigger allocation of your resources and roster spots. So, you know, you know, you in that case, you start getting into a situation when you're not dedicating as many spots to the defense, where you have to you literally have to count on you know a freshman to come in and get a, and start at a certain position, um, or you have to. Uh, maybe take a, a Juco who you normally wouldn't want to take, but that's who you need because you need somebody, you know, for example, on the defensive line that's, you know, physically old enough, developed enough to play right away as opposed to a young kid who would need extra time to, uh, you know, kind of develop. So I think that that actually plays a, played a bigger part in Oklahoma's defensive slide, I think, throughout uh, the, the course of um, – all that you know, the there in the back half, I think of the 2010s. So um, let's look then also though another really. I mean, it, if you look at the numbers, by the way, starting around 2016, you know, you really started to see those those sides of the both sides of the ball kind of even out some. And in fact, right now Oklahoma's actually spent six fewer. Uh, scholarships in the four-year total on offense than on defense. They've signed 45 offensive players from the period of 2017-2020 and 51 on defense. Now, there, I think, you know, obviously you're seeing some defensive attrition um, just based on the the change in schemes and also, uh, you know, all the problems that he's had on defense, you know, guys, uh, I think, kind of getting the, getting the message that OU needs to go, is going to go in a different direction. Um, but again, you know, it's not so out of whack. I mean, we're talking in this case about a difference of, you know, uh, 13 or 14, uh, favoring the offense in this case, you know, or in the old days to about six now, which is much closer and about what you'd kind of, uh, hope for. Um, another really important thing to, uh, look at is how we use recruiting on the defensive line. Now, this is one position where, you know, you can blame it on scheme, you can blame it on what have you, but, you know, OU went through a pretty significant downturn in terms of how they were landing, what the caliber of defensive linemen they were landing, right? You look over the history of the program, you know, since going back to 2002, that's kind of the best recruiting data that's that's available. You know, and, and OU was at yearly kind of on an average you know, they were signing roughly between, you know, right around two blue chip defensive linemen every year. Um, and for purposes of this, by the way, since OU's moved to more of a, a three-man front, I'm also counting uh, outside linebackers, edge rushers, the the kind of like Eric Stryker or uh, Obo Okoronkwo um mold out there just for to kind of for sake of keeping things uh you know consistent over time so anyway looking back at it you know you like i mentioned they were landing roughly two to two and a half maybe two point two and a quarter uh blue chip defensive linemen every year up until about again going back to it the middle of the 2010s there you start to see a pretty significant drop off, right? You've got uh, looking at it, for example, in 2012, OU signed zero blue chip defensive linemen. 2013, OU signed two. 2014, 
back down to zero. So let's think about what that means. What let's go back and look at some of the players in those classes, right? I mean, you look at it, and 2012, I you know I think uh, looks like Nelson. Does that be Chaz Nelson? Was that his name? Michael uh, Onuoha. Those are the only two. Oh, and then Charles Tapper, right? So. Again, this is not exactly a, a murderous robot. I mean, Tapper was pretty good, but the others, uh, you know, and I guess we can count Eric Stryker there too. So Eric Stryker was in the 2012 class, so to be fair. And then, you know, looking at 2013, again, DJ Ward, there's a blue chipper. Uh, Obo Okorwankro wasn't, you know, he was a three-star kid who, you know, if you think about it, really kind of took his time to develop, uh, you know, Matt Diamond, also another three-star guy. Uh, then you get starting getting to guys like Carrick Huggins, who, uh, was gone, you know, never even made it to campus, that type of thing. So, um, and then 2014, that's another one, uh, Courtney Garnett, I think he was, uh, not a Juco. He was, a he was a, uh, he was a high school recruit, but, you know, three-star kid. Um, Dwayne Orso, again, three-star high school kid. And I think those are maybe the only two that – oh, well, no, Devontae Bond. Um, he was a Juco, uh, three-star. So, again, you know, you're not talking about just absolute stud recruits here. You're talking about guys who are, you know, maybe more on the project type or maybe more just this is the caliber of defensive lineman that they could land. Now, after that, all of a sudden, though, you start seeing uh, another a, a bigger uptick starting around 2015, right? So 2015, OU lands three blue chippers up front. Uh, 2016, it's two. 2017, it's two. 2018, it's five. 2019, it's four. This year, it's two. Now, you know, total, so what you're looking at right now is OU has essentially gone from landing, you know, fewer than about maybe, say, let's say, one and a half um, blue chip players per year, uh, per four years, you know, uh, in 2014. So that would be the 2000, that would count the 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014 classes, right? So during that, during that span, OU averaged one and a half blue chip defensive linemen uh, recruited per, per year. At this point, OU's now landing 3.25 blue chip defensive linemen per year. So, so what does it mean if you've got, you know, three and a quarter blue chip defensive linemen coming into your program instead of just one and a half? Well, I mean, you know, in one season, I mean, that's just more talented kind of high-end prospects who are competing for time, who are in your program, in your weight, weight, uh, you know, in your strength training program, getting ready to contribute. Now, you know, I think that this is a, you know, it's easily the premium position on any college football roster. And, for Oklahoma, you know, to have gone through kind of that downturn, I mean, you know, there's there's something to be said for how that correlates with how poorly the defense was performing versus what you saw this year. I mean, you know, obviously Oklahoma still had had problems on the defensive end of the uh, defensive side of the ball. Certainly in the backfield, you know, you can still say there are issues there. But I mean, one of the things that really came through for OU this year was to play the defensive line, you know, and there you've got guys like Ronnie Perkins, who's a, you know, blue chip defensive end. You've got, uh, 
Marcus Stripling, you know, freshman who was able to play right away, another you know, another blue chipper. So, you know, looking back at some of the guys that OU signed in the past couple of seasons, I mean, last year, for example, I mentioned they had, uh, I think, five blue chip defensive linemen. I mean, you're talking about Joseph Wete, Marcus Hicks, Marcus Stripling, as I mentioned, um, you know, David Aguebu. That's the kind of thing that uh, I'm looking at, though, now is just, OU's raised the level of player on that side, on that on that particular part of the defense, and you know there are going to be more uh, scholarships. I think we've seen going to defensive backs now because of all the problems that OU's had there. But you know, starting up front, that's a good place to be. So anyway, wherever it is that you uh, get your podcast, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, uh, just to make it easier for everybody to find us. And uh, we'll check in with you again soon. For the Blatant Homers and Podcast, I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy.